This is Steve Balton, and you are tuned into my turning point with special guest Adam Duritz from the band Counting Crows. I've known Adam for many years, and this is a really fun conversation to catch up with him to talk about the band's new music, talk about some of the most iconic Counting Crows songs, rediscovering his love of music, and much more. So, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. All right, so where are you these days, by the way? Uh, I'm in New York. I mean, I've lived here for uh, it'll be 18 years this Christmas. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, it's funny because I just interviewed Graham Nash this morning, who also made the transplant from West Coast to East Coast. But it's funny because I know that though you've lived in New York now for 18 years, uh, most of this record was written in the UK. And as Graham and I were talking about, I'm a big believer in how environment affects writing. And I imagine writing on the UK countryside has a very different feel than writing in New York. Yeah, I think so. I mean, for me... Uh, place, well, names, places, those kind of details have always been very important in my writing, but I've always been very much a city kid. You know, it was very much like growing up in the Bay Area and then life for years in Hollywood from the second record on. And then since like Saturday nights, life in New York uh, has really been a big part of my, you know, music. But yeah, I think these were very informed by, you know, they're not songs necessarily about the countryside, a little bit. I mean, certainly Tallgrass is. But, uh, yeah, I, it was weird. It, but it's, it's so different an environment from anything I've ever, you know, written about or lived in before. Like, I was, you know, in, in the middle of nowhere with, at times, nobody around except for me and a few dogs and some horses. Like, that was it. There was just no people anywhere near me at times, you know. It was interesting. So it's interesting. Very different. When you go back and listen to these four songs, because, you know, as Graham and I were talking about in relation to our house, you know, look, when you're making a record, you're always in the midst of it. You know, you, uh, like, you know, you don't even necessarily know what the hell you're writing about until years later. It's funny. Ani DeFranco, who's, you know, obviously an iconic, great songwriter. I was asking her a few months ago about her new album and she just laughed and she's like, I don't know, tell, ask me in 20 or 30 years, you know? <laughs> so for some artists, it takes a very long time. Others, it comes quicker. But it's interesting when you go back and listen to the suite of songs, are there things you hear in there where you hear the countryside influence or that solitary influence more than you originally anticipated or originally realized? I don't know. I mean, I think that maybe it was the only place I was going to write at that point in my life too. You know, maybe it was just like, I was kind of burnt out on uh, music in a lot of ways, what it offered to my life as far as me being a part of it. And, uh, but I was out there for a while on my own and I, I found myself wanting to play and wanting to write <clears throat> in a way that I hadn't felt in a while. I just wasn't that interested in it anymore. Um, but then being out there, I, I kind of rediscovered that passion. I don't know if it's, a, if it's about, a, if the songs are about it, although you can clearly see how tall grass is, but um, I think it just woke up some things in me. Um, that I wanted to communicate. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a, I, I had, a friend of mine had made a record the year before, a couple years before, Sean Barna made this record called Sissy, which is very much about like being a gay man in America, but it also has a lot of like 
this really wild sense of place. Uh, and, but there was a flavor to it that really made me think about like a lot of the glam music that I really loved, Mott the Hoople and some of the earlier Bowie stuff. And I, when I started writing, I just really wanted something like that. I don't know what that has to do with the English countryside. I don't know. But I was always thinking like how much that world, I wanted that world to inhabit these songs. Interesting. Well, you know what? I want to veer a little bit because, you know, it's funny. We talked about John and the publishing and that's such a great place to sort of tie into the turning point moment and then come back in to the new record. But it's funny. And, and you know, I say this with the fact too, you know, most artists, of course, experience several turning points. And, you know, even in the last year, sort of rediscovering your, your joy for music, I imagine is a turning point as well. So is there one or two things that sort of, you know, that you look at as pivotal turning points that brought you to this record today? whether it's more from the past, listening to those classic records that you mentioned, or, you know, just in the last year or two, you know, sort of rediscovering your joy of music. You know, I don't know. I, I think it wasn't really listening to those records as much as it was, I, I was thinking about those records, but I'd been listening to some newer stuff that friends had made, like Sean's album, Sissy. Uh, my friend Dave Leo Pepe is a singer for a band called Gang of Youths. And, uh, they're an Australian band, but they live in London, so I was spending a lot of time with him when I was over there. Uh, you know, that was affecting me. I, I just think some of them and their passion for playing music was really affecting me and infecting me with it. Uh, I don't know about the exact points of it. I, you know, I sang on, on Sissy, uh, on this song called Routines, and I sang on the Gang of Youth record, too, and it might have been part of that. Uh, I know that when I, as soon as I wrote this stuff... I sent it to a few friends. I wanted, you know, I wanted uh, Dave to hear it, Leo Pepe, and I wanted, uh, I sent it to Chris Caraba from Dashboard. You know, the kind of the really close friends that I bounce things off of, Sean Barna. Um, I, I know that I wanted them to hear it, uh, and I wanted to get their take on it, along with the, my band's take, you know. Uh, so I don't know. It's hard to say. You know, I think... Certainly one of the things that changed in my life in recent years was I, I found myself in a relationship that was like healthy and, and that lasted for once, you know, and I've been in it for four years now. Uh, and, you know, I, I think in a lot of my life, I just didn't think there was anything as important as playing music. It just, being happy, all that other crap just didn't seem as central to like leaving a mark and doing something important with my life, you know, and Part of that is probably because I didn't know how to do any of that stuff, how to be happy and how to like live. And I think maybe being able to be in that place nowadays, feeling a little more healthy about myself, uh, made it so that I could be alone in the middle of the country. Because my girlfriend was there at times and my friend was there with his family who, whose farm it is. But there were a lot of times when I was completely alone. And I think I, I felt okay enough being that way that I could stay there and and be interested in wanting to communicate and write without feeling destroyed because I was crazy and alone, you know? Um, I think there were a lot of turning points that had to do with, you know, different things. I don't know that any specific thing, I don't know. But I, I know that at a certain point I started feeling like, well, I would, this really interests me. I love, I have an idea for something really great I'm writing and I really want to make it. And that is really challenging and interesting. And I feel like this could be a really cool record and I, I, I want to make it, you know, and uh, I have this vision and this idea to do something. 
I don't know. I was uh, inspired by a lot of different stuff. Well, it's so interesting because I've talked about this with a lot of artists as well. And, you know, look, I mean, so when, when did you get, it's so funny. You and I have talked so many times over the years. And of course I saw you at that iconic Roxy show in like, what the fuck was it? 90 or 91 when you came out with, uh, you did the two songs at the Roxy at that show with Robbie Robertson. And oh, right, with T-Bone and Maria McKee. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, it was the whiskey. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah. So, and I mean, that was sort of the first introduction to a lot of people in LA and everything and, you know, to music industry. And that was 90, 91. So that was yeah, 30, 90. 31 years ago. You know, how old were you at the time? 26, 27. It was the first Sweet Relief concert. Okay. For Victoria Williams. Yes, who's still going. And I, unfortunately, I know yeah. she was just recently sick, but I mean, hopefully she's okay, you know. But it's interesting. The reason I bring up that specific show is I talk about this with artists so many times, right? You make a decision to do music at an early point in your life, and then it only makes sense naturally that you would have to recommit to it at points, that you would go through phases where you kind of either get burnt out or you want to do something different. So it's funny for you. Have you found that over the years you have had to sort of recommit to music at various points where you're like, you know, okay, I want to do something else, or you're just burnt out, or even having the time away from it does allow you to get excited about it again and want to do it again. Well, also, you know, I think part of it is that uh, very few people have a life in music that lasts this kind of amount. You know, it is the kind of thing that uh, defeats people, you know, at points in their life. It just it just wipes them out, and then, then it ends there. You know, whether it's like... A lot of my friends who were in bands with me when, you know, or in other bands around me when we were starting out, you know, and then at some point they decided to, you know, the way they looked at it was I have to get on with my life. I've got to grow up or not. You know, uh, I kept playing and, you know, but a lot of them, it, it's hard to be in a band. It's hard to sustain any kind of success. It's hard to support yourself. And if you can support yourself, it generally doesn't last very long. It could be a year, a record a few years, but it almost never lasts 30 years, you know, and we're coming up on that. Uh, so I, I think it only makes sense what you're saying. You would have to recommit because it just, it doesn't happen that much to people where they have to go through long periods in their life. The things that defeat them, that, that stop it, that just the choices they make, marriage, kids, it could be anything, you know, like, or just, you know, burnout, uh, Maybe we're just a little too stubborn, so we we just keep sticking with it, and you know inevitably we find different things that pull us in and out of it. But yeah, I think you're right. I think you have to recommit, especially in this weird situation, because careers just don't last this long. They just don't. I mean, it's just it's a, we have you know we know the examples of where, places it did, but that's because those people are so successful and so famous. You know, like if you're the Rolling Stones, sure, but you know there's almost nobody else who was around when we started out. You know, those guys are just going to go forever. You know, Bob Dylan. But it's interesting for you then. Are there artists that you look to who are friends or that have been, like you mentioned, Chris Graba, right? I've interviewed Chris a couple times and it's like, it's funny, maybe not quite as long as you, but you turn around and it's been 15, 20 years. Or you look at like, actually, I think uh, in the next week or two, I'm talking to Jacob Dylan, who you toured with and similar, you know, so are there artists or friends or then even when you come to the Stones or Dylan or, you know, it's interesting what you're talking about the, you know, having a successful life in music and i think of someone like tom waits who you know has been in a good marriage for years and writes with his wife and you know so are there artists that you look to for the way that they've been able to evolve or that you admire 
or look to as sort of like, okay, as we continue to do this on this path, that's like, it's funny, I think to me one of the most underrated bands of all time is ZZ Top in the sense of, my God, 52 years together, the same three members. No yeah. one else has ever done that. No one else has ever done that. I really loved him, Billy. He was a guy that was around the Viper Room a lot. He was one of the Viper Room regulars when I was bartending there and hanging out. And he was always such a nice guy. You know, I never knew him well, but I spent a ton of time you know, like across the table from him or at Canners afterwards or just hanging out in the office at the, um, at the Viper. Billy was just like, just had his shit together, you know, liked what he did, liked playing. It, it, he had it, it just seemed simple to him in a way. He, like it, it wasn't complicated and it probably was, but from the outside looking in, it just seemed like he figured out what to do and had it all, was just going to go do it when it was time to do it every time and it was easy. I mean, it's not easy. It can't be, but that, it just felt that way around him. You know, in a way, it's not a surprise that it's just been that that they've managed to keep a band together because that's the hardest part. You know, that like a cooperative artistic effort. You know, that's impossible, and it, it's you know, it's it's really really hard to manage personalities like that over all these years. I, I know because I've done it, uh, and haven't kept all the same people all these years, but a lot of them. But you know, it's funny what you're talking about about the other people like. Chris is interesting to me because, you know, I know because Chris has told me and because he talked about it in a lot of interviews before we were friends that I was a huge influence on him and that our band was a big thing in determining like when he wanted to become, uh, you know, Dashboard, especially in the early days. And he wanted to sing those kind of songs. And uh, we became friends, you know, when he asked me to come sing on Dusk and Summer, which is a long time ago now. Uh, you know, like I was doing an interview the other day and they were asking me for songs by some of my favorite artists. And I picked a couple songs that I wanted to play off of Alter the Ending. Uh, the Motions and uh, Everybody Learns from Disaster. And in my mind, I was thinking of it as like Dashboard's new record because it was like a newer record. And I realized, oh, that's almost 10 years ago now. It's like 2011 or something. Or maybe it's even earlier. It's, it's not a new record. It's a long time ago. Uh, but yeah, because Chris has been around for you know, just a little bit shorter than we have, uh, just a few years after us. You know, I, I think I just, I don't know if it's people I look up to to follow the way they live as much as it is friends who I have it in common with, some who are more successful, some of who are less successful. I mean, a lot of whom are less successful because most people are. Um, but they, they, they understand me. And I understand them because we do the same thing. It doesn't, it's not the fame part of it that's really the defining characteristic of what we do. It's like the bizarre idea that you should turn your daily life into something set to music. You know, like that bizarre idea is something that occurred to a bunch of us and we've spent our lives doing it. And it's a very unique, twisted thing to do. And so I think we have that in common. And, and uh, having friends again, because after, you know, when you start out, you have people in the clubs you play with, but then you lose that when you go on the road and you get signed and you're, you know, unless you want to hang out at the MTV or the Grammys, you don't really have a peer group anymore. And starting the Underwater Sunshine Festival and the Outlaw Roadshow before that, and uh, that really brought back to my life a peer group of friends who do what I do, who understand, who I understand, you know, and uh, having friends like Chris or, you know, Stephen Kellogg, uh, I don't see him as much, but uh, Rob Thomas is a lovely guy. You know, there's a bunch of guys like that over the years that have been really, you know, a lot, me and Chris and Dave Leal Pepe these days, we just talk a lot. Um, 
Sean Barna, Matt Susich from the Underwater Sunshine, it, it means a lot having people who understand it because it's just such a weird life and a weird thing we do. And that commonality, it just somehow makes it easier to do it when you can talk about it with people. You know? It's so funny the way that you put it, and I know exactly what you mean, but the way that you put it, the you know, setting the daily, uh, your daily life to music, it makes me think of a musical. Yeah, so, exactly what it is. And it's like, it's just as bizarre as actually deciding that you should start singing in the middle of a, a talking to someone, which is what they do. I mean, it is a weird thing to do, writing songs. What a weird idea that you should get in your head that this would be better set to music, you know? And <laughs> if I rhymed it, you know? It's a... <laughs> That's so funny. I mean, do you, re- do you remember then for you when you first had that sort of epiphany? Like when it was that, that and it's funny because when I say that, it, I talk, you know, as someone who talks to thousands of artists and who's interviewed everyone from, you know, Stevie Nicks and James Brown to Aretha and, you know, you name it. It's like, it's not a choice, you know, like when you write songs, it's something that dictates to you that very simply, this is something that has to be done. So when did you realize that you didn't have that choice? Well, you know, when I was young, I loved music. Like I have my whole life. I, you know, I'm sure just like you, I've been obsessed with music my entire life. I wanted to read about it, listen to it, know it, absorb it. It's just everything, you know? But as far as a life in music, well, that didn't make any sense to me. I mean, I could sing. That was about it. Um, And what is that? What am I going to do? Be in musicals? It didn't, I wasn't really interested. You know, but I was in college, my freshman year, fall term. And my sister, my mother was off in medical school. My sister was back home. She was 16 and that's a hard time to be a girl, especially when your mother's off, not there. Um, and she was just going through a lot. She missed me. And like, like I said, it's a, it's a time in your life being a teenage girl. Um, and I was sitting in a class. I, I want to think it was a chemistry class. I started writing this song about my sister, you know, and I had, was humming it to myself. I had a melody and I wrote the lyrics and I, had never really done that before. Like, I mean, I had written some stuff, like almost like stream of consciousness poems. And they were, they kind of were set to music, but they didn't, I didn't really set them to music. But after this class, I went, I, there was a piano in a lounge across the hall from my room in the dorm. And I went into that room and I locked the door behind me and I had this thing I'd written out on a piece of paper and I sat down with it and I, I was like, I, I didn't really know how to do this. I, I thought, well, you know, I could hum it to myself and I could pick at these notes until I could figure out what note I'm humming. And then I know how to make a major chord. And I know how to make a minor chord. So I could see if one of those works, you know, for each of these notes I'm singing, you know, it took me about four hours. I skipped all my classes the rest of the day and I wrote this song and you know, it would, it's like got four chords. It would take me 10 minutes to write it nowadays, it's, but, it, but it, it took all day. But the weird thing is when it was done, I'd written a song. And I felt like uh, a change as, as significant as if gravity didn't apply to me anymore or something that was also like a, a law that it was unbreakable just was different for me. Like I was a song, I mean, I wrote a song which makes me a songwriter. I'm a songwriter. I, I'm a songwriter. You know, and before that I was a kid. I was undefined. I, I was just this kid. I was in college. I was trying to learn some stuff, but like I was this 
amorphous, vague, undefined thing. I had no idea what the world offered or what the future was going to hold. And then that's over because I'm a songwriter and everything's changed. And I, I really, really felt like that. It felt like it was life-changing and it was like, okay, this is what I do. I, I know what I am now. And I, it, that never changed. Long before any of my friends knew what they wanted to do with their life, I suddenly did. I mean, and I, I fell behind them again because then they actually started doing things and I couldn't. You know, I had to like, uh, it was such a struggle to get to where you can actually, this is a life. So it was another 10 years, you know. But at that moment, I'm 18 and I, I am literally in the first month of college and I wrote a song and it changed everything. Like I was a different person after that. It was weird. I don't think anything else in my life has ever had that effect. You know, I can't think of, I cannot think of anything else that changed me as much as that did. It, 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 and it defined the rest of my life. It's been almost 40 years since then. And, and from that day on, I knew what I was. It took me a while to make it it was terrifying because I don't know how to do that or how to survive as that, but that's what I was, and I knew it. And everything else after that was just a matter of work and work and work and work and how can I survive being this because this is what I am. And I mean, it really wasn't until the last few years that I started to think of myself in any other way, to try and think of myself as something a little more than that, a little like, what about my life? It was always just, I'm a songwriter and that's that. You know, yeah. that's so interesting. And it's funny. I don't know how much more time we have, but a uh, couple more questions. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, I just have to ask as a fan, by the way, did anything ever come of that song? Can you still play it? Do you know what Is happened it? to it? Oh yeah. It's called, ever- it's called good morning, little sister. I, I, I don't have all the words. I mean, I have them in a song, one of my song books here. I'm sure I could play it. It's, it's very simple. It's actually not bad because, because it may be because it is so simple and I didn't have, uh, you know, because you go through this period where you have a lot of ambitions and that causes you to sort of like try and be like someone else. A lot of early songwriting isn't bad because it's not very good. It's bad because it's derivative and it just sounds like you trying to be someone else. Uh, but, you know, this song isn't that because I haven't really tried that yet. It's just very simple. Um, it's just about my sister and like what she's going through and, and trying to be a young woman on her own, you know, like and it's pretty uh, innocent and good that way. It, but I mean, it's not like I wouldn't put it on a record. But, I, it's, but like, it was another chunk of years maybe after that, before I wrote anything I would consider a- any good again. I, I thought they were good at the time, but they're very dated to me now and derivative and, you know, but that song is okay, you know? It's so funny, man. Someday... And I don't, I mean, actually, I know the people who can do this, but I, I don't have the, the wherewithal to do it. But it's funny, as we're talking about this, Lucas Nelson and I were discussing the very first song he wrote when he was like 13 and how it still holds up. Someday, man, I want someone to put out a compilation of everyone's first songs because it's remarkable how many artists find that that first song still holds up in a way because there is an innocence about it. It's not... There's nothing, like you say, it's not derivative. It's just simply coming from a place of no expectations. I think that's very true. I, I can remember being at a few shows. I, I, I want to say John Hyatt maybe or Steve Earle. I can remember being at a few shows where someone played their first song and it, it always was, you know, that's pretty good. It's, you know, it's, you can see where they grew. And I'm pretty sure that after that, they did a lot of songs that weren't very good because you, just, you have all this ambition and other things creep into your head and you want to get better. Maybe you have to do that to get better. I mean, I think I got better less by getting more skilled as a songwriter and more by being comfortable 
writing as me again, you know, like eventually learning to write as me and not trying to be something else. Uh, and then I could define whatever me is for the rest of my life in any way I want to, but it was important to get back to something that was a little more true. And that first song was very true that way. So it's interesting when you go back and look through your songs over the years, are there ones that stand out to you where you can pick or even more recently where you've realized that you went back to writing as you? you oh, once, I mean, it happened before we made our first record. I'm fine with everything after that. I, I think that uh, the entire catalog is this band. I, I'm absolutely proud and fine with there's, there's a, that, that happened, but it, it took about until that point. I think it was when, when I was in Himalayans before counting crows, uh, in that period, you know, where I started to really get there. Cause I was in my first band, you know, from when I was about 20, I want to say 23 to 25, maybe, uh, my first band as an adult, um, that actually played gigs and stuff. And I, I think it was a bit of a mixed bag. When that bag broke up, I was kind of burnt out with playing music and I, decided to go with some friends and backpack around Europe and put it behind me. I thought, this is good. It was fun, but I, I'm going to do something else with my life. And I, I wanted to like make a clean break. I was going to go backpacking for a while. And I did that. But while I was gone, Immer, who's our guitar player now, uh, joined Camper Van Beethoven. They went on tour and I was like, fuck this. I got to get home, you know? <laughs> and I, I came back. And when I came back from that trip is when I think I really started writing these kinds of songs, the right kinds of songs that like, that were real. It had something to do with deciding to quit and then saying, yeah, no, I'm going to try this again. I, it took a few more years after that, but you know, uh, it, I started making a lot of improvements right then. And uh, by the time we got signed, I feel like I was there. Everything I've written since then that I've kept plenty of songs. I've like gotten halfway through and dumped that I don't think were good enough, but you haven't heard them. Except for Einstein on the Beach, which became a big hit, but that was a demo. It was never supposed to be on a record, uh, and that's the only thing I think that we've released that I wish was not on a record anywhere. But it's okay; it's it's charming. Um, but other it's than funny. that, I absolutely love that song. I, yeah, I mean it's very catchy, and I think it's very clever. I guess my problem is that it's more clever than good, and I feel like that was me trying to write a clever song about a clever subject and how it's a little more clever than it is true. Um, it, it says a clever little idea about, you know, that someone thinking beautiful, graceful, mathematical thoughts like Einstein should be responsible for a lot of deaths with an atomic bomb. And it's an interesting idea. I don't think I explored it very well, but I do think it's a very interesting idea, and I think that melody is out of this world. It's a great melody. But it's good enough. I mean, I don't, I'm not really ashamed of it or anything. I like it. I just don't, I wouldn't have put it on a record. Um, everything else, I'm totally fine with. I, I love those songs, and they're, they're all true to me. Everything I've ever put on a record, I'm, you know, 100%. Well, it's interesting about that, though. It's funny, because, look, I talk about this with every artist, right? You know, you always have something that you're striving for as an artist. If you achieve it, then there's nothing left to do. Even Coltrane if he thought Love Supreme was perfect, then what the hell's the point in still making music? So what's interesting about this is every artist, I think, has moments that you're satisfied, but, you know, it's hard to sort of achieve that level where you've achieved ultimate satisfaction. So are there moments for you that you can go back and look upon where you're like, okay, or even when you go back and look at songs that are maybe 15, 20 years old, where you're like, I can look at it now from the standpoint of a fan and figure out what it is 
that people really appreciate about this. And it's funny because I will tell you, I don't know. Are there songs for you as fan that you go back and, and you like, you know, you can know a song your whole life and then years later it just catches up with you in another way. And I look at like, for example, to me is Led Zeppelin 10 years gone is a song that like I knew my whole life. And then you hear it as an adult and you're like, Oh my God, this is the shit. Oh yeah. I mean, I just had that experience the other day with the first record I ever bought. I was listening to, I want you back. Um, which is the first concert I ever saw and the first record I ever bought was Jackson 5 Greatest Hits. And, you know, I started sitting there listening to it, dissecting how that song works and being kind of floored by how brilliant that musical arrangement is, how different it is, uh, that, that, that the riff doesn't take place on guitar, that it's on bass and uh, bass doubled on piano. You know, that and... That that whole thing part takes place with no drums. Um, yeah, there was like, I, I completely, also I realized that I had one of the lyrics wrong for 50 years because I saw that, I bought that record when I was six, so it's 50 years ago that the second line in the verse isn't one, two, three, send me back to your heart, that it's won't you please let me back in your heart. <laughs> like, that was the other, I mean, this is just literally last week. I mean, so yeah, that's constantly happening, especially with lyrics, because you don't often sit, sometimes I like to just sit down with the lyrics for a song I've known my whole life and never looked at where I could see it all on the page. And that can be really revealing. Um, with our records, you know, I, I was never thinking about singles. I was always trying to make a world that you could climb into. So I was trying to make a record. And singles often for us were just uh, the only thing that was short enough to go on the radio, <laughs> that, that there wasn't anything else that would go, you know, um, and so I never really thought they were that important. I was glad that we had them. But, you know, in from the very beginning, I was sort of taught that lesson that Mr. Jones was a pretty big hit on the radio and the record wasn't even in the top 200. We played Round Here, which is a unique band-defining song on Saturday Night Live. And the record moved 40 spots a week for six weeks until we're number two for a year and a half. You know, like, that moved the needle. Um, so for me, singles... I never really thought about what fans thought. I just wanted to make things that I thought were great and that I was really wanted to play and that I wanted to record and that I could listen to and be like, wow, that's, that's cool. You know, and so I, I, we tried to make all our albums that way. I can look back on some of them like, look, I think A Long December is perfect. That's just a bit of writing that is like, it's craftsmanship and it's just, it halfway wrote itself. I felt like I knew what the chords should be before I wrote them and played them. I just felt where they went ahead of time uh and you know it didn't take very long and it was there it just I, there's never it's the one song i can think of in our entire catalog that i never don't feel like playing I, i'm always fine playing it i've probably left it out of a show or two but almost never because i always want to play it um it just it's just that way some there's something about it that just seems like like the way a gem is perfect and cut. It just seems perfect to me. Um, but it didn't make me want to not write more. It just made me want to do it again or, or make another record as cool as that where a song like that could fit in it, where, where that song could fit in the same record with Catapult and Angels of the Silences and Have You Seen Me Lately, which are so loud and different. Um, I wanted to make records that could have those kind of songs and another Horse Dreamers Blues and... Uh, long December you know like that was it was so cool to be able to make a world like that that you could climb into and take you on a whole trip you know and so to me the records have always been about that what kind of world are we going to create this time and 
you know, I don't always want to make records, but whenever I do, it's all I want to do. Once I start writing, I'm just dying to hear them all realized on, on a record, you know, and it's just, uh, I don't know how many Long Decembers are out there, but I'm like, when I hear Palisades Park, that's one of the proudest moments of my life because we had been doing that kind of thing as an improvisation in Round Here and Rain King and other songs for years, but I had never tried to compose it that sort of like a song in multiple movements where it goes through all these changes. Uh, and it was even harder to record and play. And it was so satisfying to get it, you know, in the studio and on stage still, I have to conduct that song. Uh, and it's really cool. The fact that it works. Um, and I think that I wouldn't have written butter miracle this way without that. You know, when I started to do it, I was writing tall grass. It was the first thing. It was very, because I couldn't play very well, because I hadn't played in a while, it's very simple at the beginning. It opens up into a much more melodic thing. Uh, when I got to the end, I suddenly started playing these other chords and singing that Bobby was a kid from around the town, and I thought, oh, that's weird. That's not an extension of this song. That's a whole different song. I should write that. But wow, I guess I could write a series of songs where the end of one is the beginning of the next and make it like a suite. And I got really excited about that idea. You know, like, um, I just really wanted to do it. And I worked at it, you know, while I was over there on that farm. I wrote the first three songs. I wrote a fourth song. Uh, but then I realized later it was bothering me so much. I kept thinking it was something else that I accidentally stolen it from somewhere. And I kept asking everybody in the band. They're like, I don't hear it. I'm like, I think it's Elvis Costello. Nobody hears it. Nobody heard it. And then finally, Brian Deck, our producer, when I sent the demo to him at first, he was like, oh, yeah, that's, that other one's Welcome to the Working Week. <laughs> You've just taken part of that, a little bit of that song out. That's what that one melody in that one area is. And I was like, okay, okay, fuck, yeah, that's what it was. I got to ditch that. And then I came back a few months later, like that October, and I wrote Bobby and the Rat Kings. And, but then, you know, you have to hold this idea in your head because you can have this idea that they all work together. And when I sent the demos to the band, I, you know, each song as I wrote it, I, I played them the, into the beginning, the first couple lines of the next song so they could hear what I meant. And then I sent it off to them. So I didn't send any of them until I'd written some of the next song each time. Uh, but even when we were in the studio, we would play them like that through the end of the song, into the next song, and then stop. But you, you weren't able to hear the whole thing until we finished it and mixed it and then there was a day in the mixing studio, like in July, because we had to take a break. The, we had 85% of the record done, and we were taking a two-week break, and then we were bringing the other two guitar players in, and then the pandemic and the quarantine hit right then. It was the end of February, the first week of March. So we got you know, kind of delayed until July when we finally finished it. Me and Immer and Brian Deck are in the studio. We had a studio a couple blocks away, so we could just walk, walk there. We didn't have to take Ubers. And... Uh, we finished mixing Bobby and then we cut it together. When we sat there that first time and we heard it, you know, and it's this thing that I've been holding in my head, uh, explaining it to everyone, describing it to everyone, but only in my imagination does it exist, you know, and then suddenly we can hear the whole thing and it works. I thought it would work, but you don't know, you know, but it works. It works. It's incredible. And it's like the most satisfying moment of my life, you know, it, it feels perfect. And I, yeah, like every time I do it, but it just makes you want to do it again. 
because it's so cool. I mean, you know, then you put it out and you have to deal with everyone's response to it and that can often be very negative, you know, because sometimes people are sick of you. It just happens. It comes back around again. Maybe now they're not. But that can be very unpleasant. But the, the, the creating part, like the making, the record, the, like the incredible sense of pride and satisfaction when you sit there and listen to the whole thing. You think, fuck, we did this. That doesn't get old, you know? Dude, I feel like that's actually a really great wrap-up point. It's funny. The, the reason I was asking about the, if he goes back to songs that you've heard over the years right, is because over quarantine, I I would go through periods where I would just kind of rediscover old songs. And A Murder of One was one of those songs where I listened to that 158,000 fucking times over quarantine. And Mr. Potter's Lullaby, I never get sick of either. That's another one that, you know, just sticks with me. Like, I think the writing in that song is so brilliant. I love that. I wrote that while we were in the studio. Um, I was started it one day in there while I were doing something else. I was in the piano room and then a friend's birthday was that night. We finished everything else we were doing and everyone was going to the birthday party. And I said, you know, I'll meet you there in an hour and then two hours. And then I never made it to the party because the song is so goddamn long that it took me all <laughs> night to write. It took me a few more hours. I finished it like two in the morning, but did you know that, uh, uh, Sat- uh, not satellites. Uh, Murder of One is what Geffen wanted for the first single off that record because it has that Jesus Jones drum beat and they thought that was the hit. And they wanted to put out Murder of One, but it's too long. And so they were going to edit it. And I said, You can't edit it. I don't want anything, <laughs> anybody editing anything. Uh, and they were like, Nah, we really want this. And I was like, No, why don't we just release Mr. Jones? Not because I thought it was a hit. I, we just, we all thought Ranking was the hit. But back then you put out introductory tracks, you know? So I was like, I'm not letting you edit a song. Just put out Mr. Jones, and we agreed to disagree and put out nothing. Uh, and we just lied to people about, because we were opening for bands that were blowing up. Suede, The Cranberries, Cracker. Radio stations were at the gig. They'd come talk to us. We'd lie and say the single's Mr. Jones. And at some point, MTV actually called Geffen and said, where is the video for the single? And the record label was, what is the single? And they, were, they said, well, what do you mean, what is the single? Mr. Jones is the single. Oh, yeah, it's coming, you know, and we had to suddenly rush and make a video. But they wanted the other song. Uh, that happened with Mrs. Potter's Lullaby. It's the first time I let them edit something because they were so insistent that that be the first or second single off of Desert Life. And I was like, the fucking song is almost nine minutes long. If you cut three minutes off it, it's still five minutes long and it's not going to work, you know. <laughs> but they were so insistent on it being a hook that I, that was the first time I let anyone edit a song and make a single out of it. And it, it, of course it was, it didn't work at all. It's a piece of shit that way, but <laughs> it's like, but I love, yeah, it's a great song. They just kept falling in love with things that were eight minutes long, which is a problem with my songwriting sometimes. Yeah. But it's so funny. Cause I know we got to wrap up now, but it's interesting. Cause you know what you say about it, writing it in the studio. When I was interviewing Graham Nash this morning, we were talking about the la la la's in our house and how that was improvised. And I love, I always love the little bit at the end of Mrs. Potterfield Lullaby. Oh, that was very nice. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. That was funny. Cool. Was what do you want to add we didn't talk about? Because we covered a lot of shit as always. Thank you. Uh, I don't know if I have anything. Uh, I'll tell you one more thing, and then we should get off, uh, about Mrs. Potter's Lullaby. I met Monica Potter. Uh, after I'd written it, a friend of mine told her about it, and we ended up meeting at dinner with my friends, 
And she came up to the studio because we were the day she set up for us to meet for dinner was the day we were planning to start that song that night. And so we had dinner, and then she came up to the studio with us, and we worked on that song, and it was killer. So it was like informed by her sitting there in the studio and occasionally right next to me on the piano while I was playing it. You know, so it was really powerful, and we killed it. And then after that night, we were so excited, and we worked on the song for the next couple weeks, and somehow within two weeks, it had turned into a complete pile of shit. Like it was terrible. <laughs> like you can do that. You can ruin your song, and we were lost. It just sounded fucking horrible. It had somehow become lifeless and... It was just, it was horrible. And I, I went over her house one night after work and I was sitting, we were drinking some wine and we were talking. And she's like, how's the studio? And I said, oh, it's fucking terrible. And she goes, why, what's wrong? I said, well, uh, Mrs. Potter's Lullaby is a complete piece of shit. And she goes, no, it's not, it's great. And I go, no, it's terrible. She goes, no, it's great. I just listened to it this morning. I said, how could you have listened to it? She goes, I don't know. Come here, I'll show you. And she grabs this boom box and she pulls this thing out that says, Mrs. Potter's TK, take four. And I was like, what the fuck is that? She goes, I know your producer gave it to me that night I was at the studio. I said, I got to borrow it if you don't mind. So uh, (laughs) I took it into work the next day and I'm like, okay, everybody stop what you're doing. Listen to this. I put it on and it's great. You know, it's like, we've just managed to fuck it up beyond belief in the following weeks. But I was like, okay, everybody check this out. We just got to get back to this. This is great. We're going to start with track four. We'll take four and we'll, and we're not going to fuck it up this time. If we do, we just keep going back to this recording. And, and that's how we got Mrs. Potter's Lullaby. But we almost, we almost ruined it and lost it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I know we got to go. One word answer, because I always ask this of writers that I really like. The one song you wish you had written and why? Uh, there are two. It's Ooh Child and Walk Away Renee. And I, I don't know, they're just perfect. Ooh Child by The Five Stair Steps and Walk Away Renee by The Left Bank. In their own way, they're just perfect moments of song. I think Walkway Renee especially is a moment of songwriting that is so perfect. And Ooh Child is just, the way that band arranges the harmonies and the vocals is, it's like the great undiscovered Jackson 5 song that's not the Jackson 5. I don't know. They're just my two of my favorite songs of all time. And I've always felt like I, they're, just, they're just perfect. Yeah. It's funny. Who did the great cover? Uh, someone did. I'm going to look it up now. But someone did a great cover of "Walk Away, Renee" too that I really love as well. I agree with you. It's one of those songs that, like, reach out, I'll be there. It's just like three minutes yeah. of absolute perfection. Smokey Robinson wrote that for the Temps. I'll be there, and uh, I'm pretty sure he wrote "Reach Out, I'll Be There." The one no, that, that was, might Ma- be- that was Holland Dolls, you Harlem. Are you sure? Yeah. What's the one? Oh, "Get Ready" is is Smokey. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, you know, the two versions that I know of, uh, other than the Left Banks version of Walkley Renee, is Southside Johnny did a really nice version at one point, and Ricky Lee Jones has one on Girl at Her Volcano, and they're both really good. Those are the two versions that I always think of. Uh, it's neither one of them, actually. Huh. But that uh, Left actually, Bank I think version. I think I've, well, yeah, no, I love that one, but I think I was actually thinking of the Four Tops version. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. Wow. Well, there you go. Yeah. Cool, dude. Always a pleasure. Thanks, man. Good Have catching good up. One. Yeah, hopefully we'll see you actually back on the stage soon. Sounds like a really good thing. I would like to do that. <laughs> this fall, I hope. Cool, dude. All right, see ya. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Steve Balton. You've been turned into My Turning Point with special guest Adam Duritz of Counting Crows. Thanks. We can't take it nice and slow. Your life is so
If you're a parent with cancer, you're probably worried that your child is feeling scared, sad, or alone, when all you want is for them to just feel like a kid. Camp Kesem is a free week-long overnight camp for children ages 6 to 18 who have a parent facing cancer and was created for kids like yours to have a joyful and empowering summer. Kids have a blast together enjoying camp activities, surrounded by a compassionate community of friends. Register your child for a free life-changing adventure at kesem.org slash camp. Introducing Under Armour's Infinity High Sports Bra. Its ergonomic design is molded to support the natural movement of your body. With cord-out padding, the better breathability eliminates extra bulk without sacrificing support. And quick-dry padding is Under Armour's fastest drying padding yet. When you're lifting heavy, running fast, and pushing yourself further than ever before, you need a bra that will help you go that extra mile and make you feel your best. Shop the Infinity High Sports Bra now at UA.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 